What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Everybody, welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite podcast about all things history, philosophy, pop culture, you name it. We analyze and talk about it. And I'm excited to be here this week. I am uh, going to preamble that this week's episode is going to be tough. It's going to be dark. It's going to be covering some really dark subjects. And uh, I just want to give everyone a warning if you're looking for a light, fun Midnight Myth episode, This week is not going to be that episode. It's going to get heavy and it's going to get real here, which we do from time to time already. But in particular, the subject matter of this week can be quite uh, triggering, for lack of a better term. Yeah. um, So, yeah, don't listen with small children or if you are in a place where you're looking for something to warm your spirits Uh, maybe look at another episode. But this one we're hoping will be a rallying cry and we'll speak to uh, some really relevant and powerful themes in pop culture storytelling that can inform us of how to be better in our daily lives and uh, political activity. So can I, if it's okay with you, kind of give my headspace an approach to what we're going to talk about before I introduce what we're actually going to talk about? Is that okay with you? Of course. Good. Thank you for your permission. Um, appreciate that. So like many of us in America, we've been horrified and shocked and disturbed about the makeshift holding camps that the president ordered to put families and children into who were seeking asylum and crossing the border um, from Mexico into America. And the outrage and the hurt and the cries of the country seem to go largely on deaf ears um, to the fact that we have a very, very racist president and we have a president that's comfortable, you know, locking children and grieving mothers who are trying to escape violence into makeshift concentration camps. And from that has posited many responses, some of which have been outrage Others in America, which have been congratulations and happiness and joy under the idea that that the government is doing this. And seeing that level of dehumanization happening in in America like tears me apart, tears at the fabric of what I believe it means to not only be a good person, but also a good American. Um, And it made me start thinking, hey, I have a little bit of an audience. I have a platform. And this is what's happening in the world, 
we have a cruel and inhumane executive leader doing cruel and inhumane things just because he can. And it made me think, how can I go through the process of humanizing the dehumanized? And what, what way can I lend my voice to, to be more of a empathetic and kinder human? And this got Laurel and I both thinking about different narratives happening that encapsulate this very problem. The problem of when our humanity is gone, who have we become? What have we become? What's the cost of dehumanizing the other? What's the cost to the other who gets dehumanized? And the cost of the society that does the dehumanizing. And the cost is is big. It's really, really big. And I think of no better movie in recent years who's tackled that subject head on than Children of Men, which came out in 2006, uh, directed by Alfonso Coran. Um, and the movie grossed $70 million in the box office, yet it cost $76 million to make. So for Hollywood industry standards, a flop. But to me, one of the greatest movies out of the aughts. Yeah, and you'll find it on people's top 10 lists who are engaged with uh, with cinema and who are engaged with storytelling on a level beyond just going to see the Marvel movies every month, which is not a bad thing. But We do that. Uh, we do that. <laughs> But uh, it's, uh, if it's something that you haven't seen yet, I definitely would recommend going back and watching Children of Men because it's more relevant today than ever. And it, it's truly a masterpiece. Alfonso Cuaron is an incredible director. Uh, you'll know his work for sure from The Prisoner of Azkaban, the third Harry Potter installment, and also his sex odyssey, Y Tu Mama Tambien. Just an incredible storyteller, both visually uh, and as a writer. Um, what you just said got me... Uh, sort of ticking, and I have a quote that I had written down, because the other thing to mention here, especially in the context of what's going on in the world, but also in the context of children of men, is that we have a story that I know I am heavily engaged with and that you're heavily engaged with as well that's on TV right now called The Handmaid's Tale that is uh, similarly uh, just incredibly relevant from week to week, despite the fact that these stories have been written in advance. And if you're caught up on the series, you'll know that the latest episode was extremely, extremely relevant based on last week's top stories about parents and children being separated at the border. Uh, but just to slide us into our Children of Men conversation and a comment on what you just said, I wanted to share this quote from the woman who wrote that episode. Her name is Yalin Chang. Uh, and she said this in a Vox article. She said, Part of what's great about TV and narrative in general is that it makes you imagine yourself in another person's shoes, and that's the first step toward empathy. If we could have more empathy for these mothers and kids who are separated, that's got to be a good thing. If we could try and experience what they're experiencing, then maybe that would help make things like this policy not happen. And it's the simplest idea. That's the end of the quote. I'm sorry. Simplest idea ever. Put yourself in someone else's shoes and see where that takes you, see what humanity you find. And that's kind of my way into this conversation as well. That's great. I like, thank you for sharing that. I think that's beautiful. Um, and I think let's, uh, let's dive in and yeah. let's talk about children of men. Before we dive in, just want to say, if you are enjoying the podcast, please make sure you connect with us on social media as well. You can find us on our website, www.midnightmyth.com. There's lots of extra content there. Or you can head over to Facebook to connect with us. Visit us on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. 
or on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. And if you're enjoying what you hear, make sure you head over to Apple Podcasts or Stitcher and leave us a rating or a review and hit subscribe if you haven't already. So before we fully dive in, one other just quick preamble. If you're new to the podcast, I am the history buff here. Um, History is one of my great passions and learning about history. And I'm going to start with a overwhelming fact I learned from, you know, the last 15 years of reading a history book a month. All civilizations are on the verge of collapse. There is no human civilization that isn't walking on the edge of a knife at any time that can slip and cut itself to pieces. And Children of Men, I want to start my discussion around that movie with that lens in mind. And I think what we are seeing in the the bigger picture of Children of Men, um, beyond just an amazing technical piece of filmmaking, everything from the sound design to the cinematography yeah, the long to the takes, acting the performances. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we're also seeing an experiment of we're right on the edge of that knife. And most, most of us have cut ourselves to pieces and one civilization is kind of left. And that civilization is Britain Yeah, in the year 2027 in the near future. And what has happened, there has been mass infertility. People cannot have children And the movie starts with an exposition with the media discussing all of the problems and that the youngest person on the planet has been murdered. At age 18, so that we learn that it's been 18 years since a baby was born. Uh, And now that person is gone. That symbol of our hopes and dreams for the future is gone. And we are faced with the slow, painful extinction of the human race. This is also where we meet Theo, who's going to be our main character. And the way you talk about how the world has kind of collapsed and Britain is the last man standing, essentially, Theo is going to be the embodiment of that as an individual. He's going to be the character that we follow who is just on the brink of collapse, uh, and we have to watch his journey through navigating this world that is falling apart all around him and trying to keep himself together. Uh, Theo's introduction is super significant. He watches he watches the baby Diego uh, segment as he pushes through a crowd of onlookers in a coffee shop trying to get his cup of coffee. As soon as he gets it, he pisses off and he walks out. Uh, it shows us immediately that he is disengaged from the national conversation, that he is apathetic, that he is indifferent, uh, for lack of a better term. But he comes out and immediately what happens? The coffee shop he was just standing in explodes. A bomb's been set off. So his apathy saves his life. It's almost like the the world is telling him, good thing you didn't give a shit. Yeah. As he's pouring scotch into his coffee too, to help him numb a little bit further, it's like, because you didn't take cream or sugar, because you stepped out into the street to pour in your scotch and numb your heart a little bit more to the horrors around you, you're able to keep on going. And that's... Uh, that's a sort of painful realization for all of us. The only reason I'm able to keep going and not break down is because I look away from horrors in the world because I have the privilege of being able to look away. And, you know, that reminds me of another uh, very quick scene where Theo is just walking past a bunch of gates. Behind the gates are the immigrants. So people 
who have fled their society as it's collapsed, trying to find any last vestige of hope. And the last society standing is Britain. So everyone who just wants food, safety, and shelter is trying to pour into Britain. And Britain's response to this is to shut down the borders, yeah. militarize. Everybody who tries to cross the border is breaking the law and is a criminal. And since they've criminalized them, they've put them in the relegated, the relegated caste of other. I think it's interesting, and as Theo walks by, he ignores this. He knows it's wrong, right? And I think it speaks to your point. He feels that it's wrong. He should have empathy. Yeah. But he can just walk on by. He's chosen to turn it off. And since he walks on by, what the camera does is it refuses to let us walk on by with him. It turns around the corner of, around the shoulder of a cop with a machine gun to an old woman who just seems speaking in a language I don't speak, nor did I even like understand what language it was. But I took that as just, begging for something, some sign of compassion. Yeah. Whether it's a like a crumb of bread desperate or, cries, or yeah. a thing of water, just sitting there in a cage begging a cop, please give us something. Like of all of the tortures and horrors we've endured, we thought we would be have some chance of freedom here and being denied it. And I like how the camera doesn't allow us to be apathetic to the plight of the refugees. And this happens very early in the movie. Yeah, this uh, that's a very good word for that. The camera doesn't allow us. And this is sort of the masterful thing about Quaron's camera uh, is that he treats it sort of like Hitchcock. It's a character. The camera is, uh, is a narrator in some way. It chooses exactly what we see based on what shots are put where and who edits them into place. But it also... It, creates a connection between us and what we are seeing. So it is the, it is the bond. It is the empathy ladder that takes us there. Um, It's so interesting that this world uh, winds up where it is and it's, it's not surprising at all, but it's absurd. Um, And it's, it's kind of funny that the handmaid's tale and children of men really do posit a very similar what if as uh, speculative or dystopian fiction. They both say, what if women just couldn't have babies anymore? What would happen to the world? And Children of Men, I think, takes uh, a hyper-realistic approach that offers no surprise here because, of course, borders would clamp down even as governments fall apart. Of course, the most absurd thing in the world, which is that your geographical border makes people different and makes people more valuable or less valuable, it becomes even more absurd when those governments aren't even intact, right? It's like, how do we continue to other people even when there are no more lines and there are no more structures holding that in place? People are still predisposed to say, they're from outside my walls and therefore they are less than me. Totally crazy. Even on the brink of total total apocalypse. Yeah. Of the end of humanity on the planet, they still say... My rights as a British person trump those of the non-British. How dare you say that word? Um, <laughs> the T word. Uh, but it's, yeah. I didn't it's, mean it. I didn't, yeah. little, little case T. It's disarmingly bleak and, yeah. and very, very possible that uh, in reaction to extinction, in reaction to an apocalyptic uh, slow burn, we become worse. We react in the least human way possible uh, and start to treat each other even poorer than we used to. 
and that to me is the crux of Theo's journey. His journey from apathy to self-sacrifice. Yes. From selfishness to altruism. Yes. To thinking inwardly to thinking outwardly. I think it happens primarily a a strong, clear, but also basic three-act structure. And I don't say that disparagingly or disrespectfully. I think it's great that's a basic three-act structure that his character goes through. And I think because he goes through that and ultimately sacrifices everything Mm -hmm. to help a stranger have a baby and get that baby to a place where they may or may not be help, but is better than where they are, you know, currently because he's willing to do that to meet reminds us that the only actual response that we should have to horror that we should have to injustice is compassion. Yeah. The only way that we can counter, you know, the the upside down destruction of liberty and truth and beauty and all of the things that we we profess as the greatest parts of our of ourselves and as a, of our culture is that if we actually have to fight for them. Yeah, we have to double, triple, quadruple down on our values that we state. We have to double down on empathy and on compassion. Because what happens when we double down on security, and when we double down on weaponization, and when we say it's not our fault, it's their fault because they're different from us, we all become less free. Yeah. And the movie shows us this in many different ways. So I'll give you a piece of an example. And let me let me flesh this out a little further, if you'll permit me. Yeah. I'm going to posit that when you scapegoat the other for the sake of protecting the majority, we all become less free. Yeah. And children of men, it tells us this. For example, when Jasper, smoking a joint, goes, you know, they hand out suicide pills and antidepressants but weed is still illegal. Yeah. Right. And just a small example of a, of a freedom that like it's the apocalypse, but they're still policing marijuana when people are committing mass suicide and mass repentance. Yeah. Um, we see this in when they decide to go into the refugee camp and they expose themselves to, to the, the horrors of, of this, of the refugee experience. I would argue that the soldiers perpetuating the crimes in the camp have dehumanized themselves and they themselves are less free. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just by donning a uniform and becoming a part of a, um, a fascist totalitarian group that strips you of your individuality and then strips you of the, uh, the impulse to uh, follow your own personal values or your country's stated values in favor of policy in favor of security, in favor of scapegoating. And typically the fishers, right? The terrorist organization, the freedom fighters, yeah. the ones that are supposed to be fighting for these values, so they say, when they make the decision to weaponize Key's pregnancy and to use it in their political games, they themselves lose the very thing they're fighting for yeah. and become the very thing they're fighting against. Right, right. By losing sight of humanity and of humanism. Um, there's another thing that Jasper says. Jasper is, of course, played by the amazing Michael Caine. Um, Michael Caine. And um, he's the picture-perfect aging hippie, right? He's like the, you know, summer of love, long hair, grows weed in his house, uh, and 
is a was an activist back in the day, and now he kind of keeps to himself and takes care of his ailing wife. Um, he says as he picks up Theo from the train station, uh, illegal immigrants, after escaping the worst atrocities and finally making it to England, our government hunts them down like cockroaches, which plays right into um, that dehumanization. It turns people looking for shelter, looking for shore, into the most disgusting insect you can think of and a menace. Um, and kind of the, the reason I wanted to talk about this was because I saw this poem that was shared on Twitter by Lin-Manuel Miranda. Uh, the, the poet is Warson Shire, and the poem is called Home, and it starts, no one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. You only run for the border when you see the whole city running as well. And the poem fleshes out this idea that it's nobody's, it's nobody's ideal to look at, uh, at America or to look at Britain and say, I want to be there and I want to take their home away from them and I want to take their stuff. They're only fleeing for the border because they're unsafe, because they think there is a promise of a better world in a place where uh, the structures are a little more fleshed out or because they are afraid of something that is chasing them. Um, so we're looking at people who are in pain, who are in the most possible pain and have nothing to return to and saying, get out because this is my home. Um, and that's something that I think that the theme of, of what home is uh, fleshes itself out in Children of Men in really interesting ways because it asks us again, like what would happen if your home, the earth, your country, your government was gone the semblance of it is completely changed or it's totally fallen apart. What do you do? Because um, I tend to think that the most cogent definition of home that I can think of is just a yardstick by which you measure how much you have changed. So if you think about your childhood home where you grew up and then maybe you went to college or you you know left for a road trip and you were gone for six months and came back, you return home and it's smaller. It looks different. You know, you have to walk further to get to uh, the liquor store than you did at college. Or, you know, you, you look at the tick marks on the wall that measured how tall you were, and you are far, far above them. Uh, home is, is the constant. Home is the continuity that you get as you are changing through your life. And so being able to claim that continuity is an incredible privilege to walk back to that and say, I've grown, I've become a better person. But when that's pulled out from under you, what do you have to measure yourself against and how do you maintain your humanity? And I think Theo is dealing with that in a big way in this movie. I love that you said that. I think that is a, a very interesting point. And I want to interject some real life politics into that. Um, yeah. The point that, you know, you only flee from your home because you fucking have to, right? You don't have a choice. So, we don't get a lot of good international news from what we call the quote unquote mainstream media, which can be a, a weaponized heated term. Yeah. But if you dig a little deeper, there are some really awful things happening on, you know, you know, the North and South American continent. And one thing is that the country of Venezuela is collapsing. Yeah. It's failing. That country is completely tearing itself apart. That country is also the biggest foreign contributor to Cuba. They give more money to Cuba 
as both being socialist, more communist, orthodox style countries on this continent, you know, Venezuela, which was once very rich, thought that it needed to, it had a moral obligation to give money to Cuba to help Cuba stay afloat. As we see the Venezuelan society, pardon me, get further and further into anarchy and further and further into collapse, we're going to see a net impact also on Cuba. Yeah, And the Cuban society will suffer. And where does this leave us with the idea of immigration and fleeing the home? We're going to see Venezuelans and potentially even Cubans in mass migrating as their societies get deeper and deeper into chaos. And they're going to be coming in all different directions, one of which is north. Yeah, absolutely. North and north means to, for some, that means that they'll migrate to America. Now, I don't know this is going to happen, and I'm not at all an expert in Venezuelan economics or politics. But I've read the news, and I, I, what the news is being reported is bad. And as we think of home as a place that you only leave when you have to, yeah, you know, we're going to see more migrations because of this. Because what happens in one place of our shared you know, half of the globe will affect the other place. And the question's going to be is, look, what type of, of a country are we going to be when and if? This happens, right? Are we going to are we going to turn a blind eye, or are we going to reach out and help? And in a very pragmatic way, what Children of Men tells us is when we completely militarize the border and dehumanize those trying to cross it, we hurt ourselves as much as we hurt the others. Yeah, we tear at the soul of our own society. We become a nation of first act theos. Yeah, yeah, blind, numb apathetic, walking through life and just without a care, without love or compassion and only willing to assist people under threats of violence and then ultimately bribes of money, which is what it takes for Theo to get back into the game. We start to access the real Theo around the end of the first act. He visits... uh, Real quick, the Mm -hmm. end of first act, I kind of put that as when the Fishers kidnap him. Uh, I would put that as the inciting incident, but I would say the end of the first act is actually when, um, when Julian dies. Okay. I'm with you on that. But yes, we, we Theo starts to crystallize around, you know, half hour into this movie. Um, I do want to, uh, touch on the scene where he goes to visit Nigel, uh, which I think is really, really interesting in laying out, um, exactly what we were just talking about, the country that can turn a blind eye, the uh, privileged upper classes that live in this Britain and don't have to deal with the drama on the streets. They're, you know, they're even floating above Theo where he, event- he occasionally has to actually walk by these people and listen to them crying, but the Nigels of the world kind of don't. Um, and Nigel is a character who has hoarded all of the world's great masterpieces that he could possibly save in his apartment, in his penthouse apartment. So you walk in, and the first thing you see is Michelangelo's David in some disrepair, but it's this masterpiece of a sculpture that represents the underdog facing off against Goliath, and yet it's been hoarded in the home of the literal Goliath of this story, who is the um, you know, the, the foe that you can't defeat because he's so high above you. Um, 
And then the first thing Nigel says is we couldn't save the Pieta. And I think this is significant because he's referencing another one of Michelangelo's masterpieces. Um, David is going to be the most recognizable, but right after that, the Pieta is something that he made very early in his career, and it is the famous uh, sculpture of uh, the Virgin Mary cradling the dead body of the adult Christ. Um, and it's in uh, it's in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, and it's a just tragic and heartbreaking statue of a mother cradling her dead child, um, where even the Savior, even the Lord, looks like a frail, just forsaken baby. Uh, and it's really a tragic thing to, to look at. Um, but this character is like, nah, couldn't save it. We got the other masterpiece. Uh, and it reminds us again that he's looking away from the actual horrors of war and just idealizing things. Um, who, who, Nigel? Nigel, okay. Nigel, and Theo to a certain extent. Nigel's dinner table is presided over by Picasso's Guernica as well, which is one of the most, if not the most famous war paintings ever that shows the horrors of war in such gruesome detail that to imagine having that above where you eat is really, and be able to just continue to eat your food without being moved to tears by it is really scary. Because um, I can't look at, at Guernica without feeling grief. Um, but that, yeah, that scene is really interesting to me because of course, later in the movie, we do see the Pieta essentially reconstructed, reconstructed on the ground, or we see in Becks Hill in the refugee camp, a mother cradling her dead son in the thick of war. And the camera once again lingers on her and shows us that and is like, this is the same as that Michelangelo masterpiece in context. Yeah, yeah. You know, the Nigel scene to me is so important in setting up the context of what I would say would be the profane, the, pro, the profane use of high art. Yeah. You know, so the character Nigel, from what we can tell, he's super important. He's super high up in the British government. He's got wealth. He's got power. He's got a son who's like checked out into video games and uh, apparently has some medical condition. Yeah. And, you know, in lieu of all of this great art, there is a lack of understanding of what that art means. Yeah. And what the purpose of great art is. You know, and, and this is not a universal purpose, but at least in part, great art is about binding the human condition together. Yeah. By, by creating a community by which we can go around it and to discuss it. And, and art is something that should be shared for all to see. Beauty is not meant to be hoarded in a treasure room of a high ranking government bureaucrat. Yeah. You know, it's meant to inspire all humans. And the fact that these great works of art are both a representations of conflict yeah. between the Picasso and David in one sense, um, you know, and B are locked away from the conflict is telling us that, you know, this character, Nigel has no heart in the conflict, but he's commodified it. He has fetishized the conflict to the point where he can just break bread next to Guernica. I'm going to take it cause I can. Yeah. And because it's coveted, but I don't get its meaning. Yeah. I don't even, it's not that I don't get its meaning. It's that Nigel doesn't look for the meaning. It's just about having it. Exactly. And, and then, it comes it comes back to that quote from the Handmaid's Tale writer. Uh, stories and narrative, and I think art in general, are meant to 
help us take the place of other human beings and forge empathy. Uh, and he is using it for the exact opposite purpose. And he's using government resources to get it, maintain it and keep it. Yeah. Right. So he's using the people's tax dollars. He's using the resources that could be spent to fight some of these injustices, to cure this infertility disease that's crippling and killing off humans. Uh, But instead he's using those to collect the art. And when Theo comments on the absurdity of this, Mm-hmm. But Theo says, you know, in you know, maybe about a hundred years, there's not going to be a wanker left to give a fuck about all this shit that you've collected yeah. in your little throne room here. And what Nigel says is so telling. He goes, Theo doesn't say that like, aggressively. He's not attacking him. He really wants to know, like, like how are you maintaining like this, and how are you maintaining yourself? And Nigel just goes, Well, I'm blissfully ignorant. Yeah. He says. To tell you the truth, Theo, I just don't think about it. Yeah. And to me, that that is the crystallization of, of privilege and of power and its ability to corrupt. And I think juxtaposing Theo next to that is so important that we understand Theo is not that. Yeah. At his core, he does actually give a shit. He's just pretending that he doesn't. Exactly. And, and Nigel is one of the poles where Julian is the other pole and and Theo is gravitating towards the Nigel pole at this point in his story and we are going to watch him slide towards the Julian end of the spectrum. Um, Julian, I think, is it, it helps us break apart what Theo is as we sort of move into the next phase of the movie because she's home, right? She is what... Uh, Theo used to be. She's the manifestation of what he used to be, which is an activist, someone who deeply cares about other people. uh, And they had a relationship. They had a marriage and a child together. So both like literally and uh, figuratively, they are each other's souls in in other forms. Um, And I I think the fact that uh, we encounter them together and we start to see Theo's shell come apart. We start to see who Theo was and he denies it a little bit. He's like, no, nah, I was just in it to get laid. Like I wasn't a real activist. We, we know that he was. And then they start to play that ping pong game that puts them back on the same uh, plane together where we realize that like these two are one and Theo actually has the potential to be uh, a great selfless, uh, self-sacrificing human being. And then Julian is immediately violently ripped away from him. She is the home uh, that is completely destroyed right in front of him where he's suddenly faced with a choice of like, am I going to gravitate back towards that Nigel pole? Am I going to turn away, keep self-medicating with alcohol, keep looking away from the pain and destruction on the streets? Or am I going to double down and fight for the future of humanity in Jules's memory and in the memory of the person that I once was? Yeah, and... I think that catapults to, uh, you know, Theo back at the, the barn house, the barn house, back at the farmhouse that happened to have a barn. Back at the barn house. Yeah, barn meanwhile, house is not a thing. Meanwhile, back at the barn. Parn- Podcasting is hard. You got to be smart all the time and you just say stupid shit sometimes. Sometimes. And we could go back and edit it out, but we have so much more fun being dumb. Anyway, <laughs> uh, enough with, with the side banter there. Sorry, everybody. Um, back at the farmhouse um, where the fishers are there, and this is where things start to unravel. Yeah. 
Julian was trying to lead the Fishers in a moral way. She had Key, who we now learn is pregnant's best interests at heart. When Theo sees that she's pregnant, he no longer can sit on the sidelines. Right. He realizes that, you know, there's a woman who's about to have a baby, something that he has seen and firsthand, and he knows how difficult and painful and miraculous that is. Um, and then he also realizes that people are going to use key as a political post by which they can rally their flag. And Theo makes a decision not to be an activist, but to advocate key's interests Yeah, in the scene in which they're debating what to do. And he says, go public. And they say, what go public. He goes, we need to go public. Key needs a doctor. Yeah. Yeah. Immediately, rather than thinking, oh, how significant is it that the first baby born in 18 years is a refugee? Like, won't that change everybody's minds? Or like thinking we have to, you know, actually get this baby and use it as a poster child. The first thing he thinks is, is anybody taking care of this woman? And is anybody going to be there to deliver the baby and make sure that she makes it out alive, make sure that the baby makes it out alive and that we take care of these human lives, which are miraculous. Uh, That's the first place that he goes. He has a revelation. Uh, And the rest of the people around him, with the exception of probably to some extent Miriam, who I think is genuinely interested in in Key's welfare, uh, everybody else around is like, we need to use this because it's a tool. And that shows the other end of the spectrum of... You know, it's far from apathy. It's far from looking away from the pain and destruction on the streets, but it swings so far in the other direction that it dehumanizes again as well. Yes. Um, so the Fisher's moral failing to me is yeah. they have they have an end in mind, which is to overthrow the government. And it doesn't matter how they get there. Right. As long as they get there, they think they've done good. I think the character Luke believes in his heart he's making the tough and right decisions. But yeah. because Julian cares for Key more than she cares for the Fisher's political goals, she gets killed by her own people. Right. And she tells, and like, Julian somewhat knows this, we suspect, because she tells Key, only trust Theo. Don't trust anyone else. And because of that, Key is like, okay, well, I'm going to, to listen to Theo and let him help me over anyone else. And Julian was right. Thea was the only one she could trust. Yeah. Everyone else wanted to utilize her situation and utilize her potential first baby in almost 20 years as a weapon. And Thea is the only one that says it's not a weapon. It's a fucking baby. Yeah. It's a human life. And to me, this is what, what I mean by when we treat like the outgrowth of what happens when we become a fascist government the resistance becomes just as fascist Yeah, in trying to fight the fascists. They become the very thing that they hate. We all become less free. We all suffer under an oppressive regime that hurts people, you know? And in this way, if Britain had a more lenient or tolerant attitude toward those trying to get there more welcoming and more embracing, he could have had a doctor. Right. He could have, she could have been uh, uh, had access to medical and scientific professionals that could have studied how she got pregnant to maybe stop the apocalypse. It's the oppressive regime and then the oppressive resistance 
who fails to see all humanity in their fight to save humanity. Right. That makes her just a tool in everyone else's game. Yeah. And there's one person left at this point, and it's almost the exact midpoint of the movie that actually cares for key. And that's Theo. And that's when we realized Julian's trust was not misplaced. Key's trust is not misplaced. And that's where we, as the audience learn in the worst circumstances, There needs to be a Theo. There needs to be those who will stand for others just to stand for them. Yeah, just to stand for them because on their own merits, human lives have value. Uh, It it has nothing to do with how they can be used and what kind of tool they are. Um, it's, It's just the principle of caring for other human beings and wanting them to have uh, every opportunity that you have. Um, I think that's... I totally agree. That's wonderful. Yeah, I totally, totally agree. Um, Something that I found super interesting in this rewatch of the movie is uh, watching how people change when they are confronted with the reality of this baby. Um, So for Theo, it's really uh, a wonderful moment when he first sees Key's pregnant belly. Um, And that's a beautiful scene where she removes her her shift and she covers herself in a way that looks a lot like Botticelli's Birth of Venus and opera music plays and it's just this pure, like there's a a spirituality to the moment, but it's just a pure, um, powerful and beautiful thing that like, oh, miracle right in front of me, highest stakes I have ever seen. And Theo is immediately changed. Uh, this is what drags Theo more than anything towards the uh, the end of the spectrum that he ends up on, which is self-sacrificing. Um, and throughout the movie, we see this kind of change happen in certain characters when they encounter the truth of the child. Um, even Key, later when they're at the safe house, when they're at Jasper's house, explains that she had that moment because uh, she never had the education. She never had sex education. She didn't know that anyone could get pregnant, and so she doesn't know anything about reproduction. Uh, And so when she got pregnant, she didn't really understand it, and she didn't want to be in the position she was in, and she was depressed and suicidal. Um, But then she felt it kick, and the reality of the baby suddenly was like, oh, you're alive and you should be alive because there is miracle, (laughs) like the most amazing thing ever um, in this life. Um, and this happens later with characters who, who see the baby, like Marika, who sees it and then suddenly is like, I will do anything for you. Um, and even Luke, who is still, uh, this is the character who's the leader of uh, the, the resistance, who is still fighting for his political uh, agenda, as soon as he sees the baby breaks down crying because he forgot how beautiful they were. It's revelatory and what kind of hurt me about uh, watching that was how uh, optimistic it was. Uh, Because I guess in a world where you create stakes that are so high that there could be one baby born after 20 years of infertility, that's going to lead to different reactions. But for me, it feels like if you see a human life in danger or you see uh, a human in pain whether that's on the news or it's a photograph, uh, we should all have that moment. We should all say that is a real thing and that is a thing that has value um, and we should do whatever we can to help it. And I don't think that's the case right now 
uh, with most of us. So I think a lot of us are SIDS, where we see the baby and suddenly we're like, okay, great, how can I use it? Um, so it was kind of a, a painful uh, revelation that I had during this watch. Yeah, I, um, can, we, uh, can we talk a little bit about Jasper? Please. Um, so Jasper, to me, the wise old man, the sage, the Tiresias, the one who sees all, when we get yeah. to the point where Theo's decided to protect Key and he gets her away from the fishers, realizing that the fishers killed Julian, the fishers will kill him, and the fishers don't give a flying fuck about Key or her baby, but they just care about toppling the government. Right. He takes her the only place he trusts, which is Jasper's. And there we hear Jasper's metaphysics. We hear Jasper explain the confluence and bumping up of forces that determine the outcomes of, of human endeavors. And he calls it the conflict of faith and chance. Miriam calls it the yin and yang. Yeah. Ancient Indic philosophy will call it Prusa and Prakriti. Uh, Plato called it ignorance and self-knowledge. Um, the idea that there are two opposing forces pulling at the fabric of reality is not a new philosophy. It's the dark side and the light. It is the idea that faith, people act because they believe in things, and then chance, the randomness of the universe. And he cites as an example of faith and chance that Theo and Julian met because they believed in a political idea. Their faith brought them together. And chance made them bump into each other and fall in love. And their love and their faith and their love gave them a child, Dylan. And then chance took the child away in a great flu epidemic. And um, what he then says is what broke Theo, what made him apathetic was, quote, why bother if life is going to make its own choices? is that Theo has given in to chance. Yeah. It has all become random. He is a man without faith. I think faith in Jasper's way is not a religious faith, but a self-actualization. I believe I can make my own choices, and because I believe I can choose and I can do things, but that still doesn't alleviate that things will happen out of your control. And that combination of what I call Jasper's metaphysics I think tugs at Theo and he starts to cry and one, because he obviously misses his son. He obviously misses his ex-wife who he saw murdered in front of his own eyes. Um, but I also think it's interesting that Theo is wearing a 2012 London Olympics shirt, huh. um, which is interesting. The movie came out in 2006, right? but the 2012 Olympics had already been announced and it was in London. So they knew that London would be where the Olympics would be. And amid all of this, the entire time in this end second act, third act, Theo is wearing a shirt signifying the coming together of yeah. all nations to celebrate and to compete in games for the joy and entertainment and celebration of international humanism yeah. and international rights. Oh, wow. That's amazing that you picked up on that. So... I mean, and there's nothing in this movie that's by accident. Everything is deliberate. Oh, for sure. And though Theo doesn't choose this shirt, it's given to him because his other one is covered in Julian's blood. So it's just, oh, here's just this old Olympic shirt 
you know, lying around, you know, what we see with Theo's journey is, you know, at this point, Jasper's metaphysics saying, hey, Theo believes life makes its own choices, where we see Theo start to make his own choices. Right. He doesn't allow life to make choices for him. And the interesting aspect is if we connect the backward dots to the forward dots, meaning if we take Theo right in the middle of the movie, we look at what do we know about the character, every little bit, every little random chance that happened ended up putting him in a position when it came time yeah. to deliver the first baby in 18 years, he was the right person yeah. to be there. Down to the fact that there was no clean water to wash his hands. While he's an alcoholic, what does he have to sanitize his hands? His scotch. Yeah. Yes. So the very thing, the very vice that has kept him numb for all of these years, that has kept him uh, primed to look away from pain and suffering, is the very thing he needs in, in that moment to sacrifice, to pour it out over his hands, but to cleanse him. Uh, and that's an incredibly powerful symbol, is destroying his vice uh, to, to deliver this baby, but he could only deliver the baby if he had the vice in the first place. You have to leave to come back. It's that theme of home once again and seeing that home can be the person that you were, that you idealize. So you have to depart from that sometimes to be able to look back and say, that's where I want to return to. Uh, and Theo returns. Absolutely. And to, to me, also the fact that he is a father who lost a child yeah. means that he is capable of seeing the unborn child as a full and complete potential self worth defending on its own because yeah. he has the compassion of a father. And just on a simple, practical level, he knows how to tell her to breathe. He knows to tell her to push, and he knows that there's no rush to cut the umbilical cord and that they can take their time and he actually has the practical skills to at least be competent in delivering the child. Right. Uh, he's yeah. no substitute for an actual doctor. Absolutely. But at least he's been there but before. But in a refugee camp where there are no doctors and you're on a dirty mattress, uh, who else do you want but one of the few people who has seen childbirth in this world? Exactly, which is something that most haven't. Right. So... All of that ends up being that when we see the universe of a combination of faith and chance, Jasper's metaphysics, I start to wonder if the, the movie starts to say the universe is actually bigger than faith and chance. It isn't just faith and chance. And that maybe this was, in a, a broader sense, Theo's destiny. Right. Or is, yeah, is there... Um do those two go hand in hand and live together like yin and yang? And one can't exist without the other, of course, but they each contain little pieces of the other um, so that by faith you can realize your destiny. Um, yeah. And in that, this is what propels Theo to lay down his life to save Key. And one thing that I think is interesting about the the end of the film um, when Theo does die and Theo gets shot, but we don't even really see it. It happens so quickly. It's Luke who shoots Theo yeah. in the ending battle, in yeah. the ending war, in the refugee camp, but it happens so quickly we don't see it. Um, Theo just doesn't care that he's bleeding out and dying. 
all he cares is that he's helped Key and he's helped the baby. And he's who, maybe helped the human race in we, some way. Who we now know is Dylan. You know, so he has helped Key. He's helped Dylan get to the human project. We don't know in this world if the infertility crisis is going to be solved. No. We don't know if Key and Dylan are a unique apparition and there won't be other children. We're left as the audience to not know the outcome and fate of this world. And we don't know if she's about to board the tomorrow and the people on board are want pirates. to use her baby or are pirates or, you know, are, are victims of the same toxic ideology as the other characters she's encountered. But maybe they're not. Maybe they're all Theos. Maybe they really do want to help her. Um, and I think we're left in a very optimistic place. Yes, and I think the ultimate resounding message is, you know, we do have to give a shit, and we have to give a shit about people, and people that don't look like us, and people that don't sound like us, people that we may not want as our neighbors, uh, people that may make us nervous or uncomfortable, but we need to see people as full and complete individuals, as humans, as part of the same miraculous process that brought us all here, and that there's a fundamental human connection, a piece of humanity that we all share and that we are all one species. And we lose a piece of that when we sacrifice some humans uh, for gain, whether that's political gain, like sacrificing Mexican immigrants in the hopes that that might make you a, a better chance of winning in a midterm election, like Donald Trump is calculating. Right. Right. Or whether that's, um, you know, sacrificing refugees on the verge of the apocalypse. Those are equally as bad. Empathy and uh, identification with the other and the removal of those borders to become self-sacrificing for anyone is what will save us. Uh, we get uh, we, we see our main character die, uh, but we also are witnessing a rebirth. We're witnessing uh, a, a renaissance because... The name of Dylan, the name of his son, is carried on uh, because uh, Theo gets to live on in the memory of Key and her baby. Uh, and Theo, as the stand-in for us, as the stand-in for Britain, but humanity writ large, who would prefer to look away but sometimes is thrown in, uh, Theo's rebirth, Theo's renaissance, is ours. So we learn by watching this movie that if we place that value correctly... Uh, and we fight for it, we will be reborn and we will be saved from extinction. We may have to lay down our lives. Right. But it's a fight worth having. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And Children of Men is a beautiful movie, and it is so reminiscent. It is so uh, instructive. It's a piece of art that can teach us so much about where we are currently at as Americans who are on the verge of a, a tipping point. And remember, my, my final thought here is to go back to one of my entry thoughts. Every society is walking on the edge of a knife and balancing. And if it slips, it cuts itself. Yeah. And every great society that has ever existed has torn itself to pieces at some parts, and sometimes it can't recover, and sometimes it can you know, America has been on the edge of this knife for a long time. It fought a bloody war, the bloodiest war in the history of two continents. 
happened in America with Americans killing Americans. Yeah. You know, and let us just remember that when we as Americans say that what it means to be American means to declare the universal human rights of all. That was the core bedrock principle of this country. And when we let that principle slip, we have slipped on that knife and we are starting to slice ourselves to pieces. Oh, yeah. My, my final thought is in that same vein. My final thought is just kind of a wish and a blessing. Um, and my wish from the Midnight Myth is for us all to recognize miracles in our world as we see them and treat them as such. Uh, and as hokey and cheesy as this might sound, love is that miracle. And that's the love between a parent and a child. That's the love between spouses or friends or lovers or acquaintances or caretakers and caregivers. Uh, all of that is miraculous and should awaken our humanity. Uh, and it should make us mad as hell if we see atrocities, if we see that love being violated, if we see children in pain, if we see mothers in pain, um, or we see people who love each other ripped from each other's sides, that should make us want to beat the shit out of the people doing it. Um, right. You were not powerless, listeners. We are not powerless, hosts, Derek and Laurel. Mm-hmm. We have the power, and let's use it to just try to make this sloppy, disgusting mess called humanity a little bit better than when we came into it. Yeah. Yeah. Be mad at the Sids. Be mad at the Nigels. Be mad at the Lukes. Um, but ensure that you maintain your humanity along the way. See all human life as valid and inherently valid, valid and equally valuable um, because we want to have a home to return to. And next week... We might do something more fun if we depressed you. Maybe we'll do something lighter next week. Maybe we'll talk about The Incredibles. Yes, but it's a heavy, heavy, heavy time that we live in. Yeah. And guys, as always, until next time, be kind. Be kind. Be kind.